This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. The school holidays have arrived in my household and Let's Make Art, a new podcast sponsor, has been a real smash hit. Their custom art boxes have gone down a treat with not only the little but the big kids in my house as well. Whether it's a miserable day and you're stuck indoors or you want to just have a chill day at home but enjoy the sun outside, there really is a custom art box for you. Anyone can have an art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits and supplies for a variety of different activities. Whether like me, you're a total beginner, an absolute amateur or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each art box, they are designed to encourage, support and enhance your experience with art. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today and be sure to use promo code UFO art in the checkout and you will save 20% off your order. That's a huge 20% off. I've posted my special link in the show notes so you can go to zen.ai forward slash UFO art for 20% off. And thank you to Let's Make Art for sponsoring this episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted for his long overdue first appearance on the podcast. We have the creator of The Black Vault, theblackvault.com, author, researcher and I think most importantly a father of two young children, very similar to myself. I've got John Greenwald. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, it's really cool timing because as we record this, it's the twelfth of August, just gone seven p.m. in the UK, eleven a.m. Pacific, your time. The the Calvine photo has just dropped. Um, it wasn't something I was going to discuss on the podcast, but uh, we've briefly chatted uh, off air on it, and I just thought it might be a good thing to bring up quickly because when this goes out on Monday, the 15th uh, of August. People will have seen this. It's already been retweeted by Joe Rogan's Twitter account. Um, it's been picked up by various news outlets already, and I'm sure that'll go a bit wider spread. The Calvine photo, I'm sure, is one you know you know very well. You've been in this game a long time. Um, it's a photograph that was allegedly taken in Scotland in the early 90s of a UFO. Nick Pope has, has built a lot of his career around the myth of this photograph, as he famously had it on his desk, apparently. Um, and it was taken away. We've since seen the, the black and white negative come out. And just today, my colleagues at UAP Media, uh, including uh, Vinnie Adams and uh, Dr. David Clark, have managed to release the original photograph. And it shows the kind of diamond-shaped craft from what we can see with the quality of the photo, followed by a kind of unknown military aircraft in the background. Some of my colleagues are saying they they assume it's a US Harrier jet, but they're not quite sure exactly what make and model, just again with the quality. Um, you've, you've seen the photo, you've seen the article. Uh, links will I be have, in the description. Yeah. What are your initial thoughts? You know, it's great to actually see it if it really is. I'm always skeptical. I know that may come as a surprise to some people, but whenever something either leaks out or comes out for the first time, uh, I'm I'm always apprehensive to go, this is it. Um, it's not that I'm doubting anybody who did the research. It sounds all legit. But what I did right before the program, and literally, as you mentioned, it just dropped. Like I just found out about it, I would say, probably within the last hour or so, uh, but went to, to, to my longtime friend, Nick Pope, and said, hey, I know you've seen the real thing. Can you comment on it? Uh, he also tweeted this comment, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it just to make sure that I don't you know, um, uh, uh, misquote him, but yeah. he says, quote, it's my policy not to comment on leaked information, especially if it might be classified. So until I receive Ministry of Defense advice, I can neither confirm nor deny if this is the picture that was displayed on my office wall when I ran the MOD's UFO desk, unquote. So uh, I've, I was asking him if I could tweet that as well. Uh, and apparently he already did. So I retweeted it right before the program. Uh, so that being said, you know, I have no real doubts up front that it's not the real photograph, but what it depicts uh, is kind of the question mark. Are we talking about proof of alien life? This is a smoking gun or is this a classified piece of technology from, let's say, the United States that was being flown and got captured on a photograph and the legend was born ever since. So that I don't know. I, I mean, there's a lot of unwritten parts of this. And if this is the photo, I hope that there's a 
higher resolution if there's a negative and these answers may already be out there by the time this airs um, but you know just getting higher resolution scans what can we figure out is the negative available that kind of stuff and go from there but it's exciting I mean it, it really is uh, exciting to finally see it it's, it's a really interesting image and if you don't mind I asked you before we recorded just in explaining the the process is how this could come out in this photograph. Now, allegedly, um, well, we know it was taken by two to three individuals in Scotland in the early 90s. The story goes they were just in a place that, for one reason or another, happened to have this object fly by. They weren't there expecting it. They weren't government individuals. They were no one special. They just happened to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time, depending on how you want to look at it. The story uh, goes again that the the... The negatives in the photograph is sent onto the Daily Record in Scotland, which is one of the big tabloid newspapers. There's not many of them. And from there, it went missing. And ever since, it's, it's never been seen again. Now, if this is an individual's photograph, like we're going to assume for now that it is, and it was it was published, why couldn't Nick Pope speak on it? Why do you think Nick may be saying that it, it's classified when it's, it's someone's personal property? And this was something I was, I was having you explain to me because I wasn't sure how that exactly sure. would work. Yeah, I'm more familiar with US copyright law versus what it would be overseas. But in short, I'm not too surprised because, you know, Nick's going to be very, very careful with his previous oaths and security clearances to not overstep. Um, I'm, I'm speaking more generally and not necessarily specifically about Nick. But when somebody comes out of the government and they are being asked about material that was not officially released, uh, they have to be very careful not to act like a spokesperson. And uh, even though that may not be their intention, sadly, there will be some that might take it that way and and saying endorsed by the MOD because Nick Pope said it. And we all know that that's, that's not the case, but there are some uh, people that might think that or some journalists that might print it. So it doesn't surprise me that Nick is, is being careful at this point and wants to uh, ask the MOD, can we talk about this? Can we confirm it? And then we'll get hopefully more of Nick's feedback. But if it was just taken by somebody else, yeah, in a legal sense here in America, the way the copyright would work is that a former government uh, personnel, even with a, a clearance, could speak about it because it's not a work of the US government or the military. It's not a product of that. And so their security clearance does not go in jeopardy by them talking about what, uh, let's say, Andy or John or Bill or whomever took a picture of. So there's a difference there, but I, I don't blame Nick for trying to be a, a little bit careful and and uh, trying not to not to overstep too quickly since since this is something that really just unfolded. Yeah, that that's fair. It's literally just over an hour since it dropped via the Daily yeah. Mail. So as the hours and days pass, by the time this comes out, like you say, hopefully we've got some more information or at least some really interesting questions off the back of it. But thanks for that, John. Listen, sure. Let's get into the interview that I had planned now. Um, always an interesting development and maybe some more as the days go on uh, from what we hear coming up. John, uh, you are a, a massive name in the UFO topic. Some people would say you're quite controversial, very skeptical, very <laughs> outspoken. But I think largely people do tend to respect what you do in, in the realms of FOIA. But I want to take you back before we get there to, to your earliest memories of the UFO subject. And do you remember getting, was it movies? Was it a TV show? Was it books? Or is it just something that's maybe always been there? Well, I've always had the curiosity. I grew up watching the X-Files uh, definitely through my, I would say, junior high and high school years. You know, X-Files was a popular show and always loved it. I had not started the Black Vault at that point, never thinking that I would want to investigate either government secrets or any aspect of the paranormal seriously. So I would say that I've had a lifelong interest, always loved sci-fi as well, collected comic books as a kid. So I've always had that interest, but about the age of 15 was when I was on the internet. Google wasn't even a thing back then uh, when I was uh, surfing. I learned the internet not to age myself, but on AOL uh, for DOS. So, you know, yeah, for, me too. For, the, yep. for the youngsters out there like, what the hell's that? But this was, you know, kind of the old school internet. 
and you start getting into these chat rooms and people talking about UFO stuff and wasn't underground in a sinister way, but it was just these chat rooms that you would end up in. And my interest would start to grow. And I remember searching at the time it was Alta Vista and Alta Vista was the search engine searched in UFOs. And even at the time you would get hundreds of thousands of, of hits on UFOs. But I came across a website that talked about a, a four page government document uh, it's infamously known as the 1976 Iran incident. And you read through this thing and, and in my opinion, it doesn't read like it's real. And I thought there's no way that this UFO sighting or UFO incident, I should say, with multiple UFOs shutting down two separate F-4 Phantom jets uh, was real. There's no way that came from the U.S. government. So they talked about this thing called the Freedom of Information Act. They said, you can get it too if you doubt the legitimacy and likely it won't cost you anything. So being 15, I'm like, wow, government's going to send me something for free. I'm all over that. And it's a UFO document. Cool. So I did exactly what they instructed to do. And sure enough, weeks later, it was only like three or four weeks, got this document in the mail. Now this was back in 1996 and I read it and it was real. And I just was hooked at that point because now you're not talking about AOL chat rooms or BBSs, if anybody remembers those things and, and stories that were shared. But now we're talking about official US government documents being sent to me, a 15 year old kid. This, this was cool. And I thought if there was one document on the internet, there has to be more. So I went back to the internet and searched and searched, didn't find anything. And so I thought, you know what? whatever this Freedom of Information Act thing is, if they sent me one document, maybe maybe there's more. And I started teaching myself how to use the FOIA, file the requests, go after information, and at the same time was teaching myself how to program in HTML. And I thought if I was looking for a website of government documents, so were, so were others. There had to be at least two or three. Uh, on the internet. So I started building a website and the original rendition of it wasn't even called the black vault. I mean, I had all sorts of stuff on there. UFOs was just one section, but it became known through the the first couple months as um, kind of the UFO spot for government documents and not to go off too uh, much of a tangent, but I used to type them in by hand uh, because I couldn't afford a scanner. And scanners were pretty expensive back then, and they were flatbed. So you would have to go one scan and then two scan. And it was, you know, kind of tedious. But regardless, I couldn't afford one. And I had created a a legend of ASCII characters to depict unreadable characters, blacked out information. And I would try and, and create the document in text exactly what I was looking at on paper. And I think I got to about four or 500 pages at that point. Uh, before somebody had written me privately and said, hey, I want to sponsor you. Uh, let me send you a scanner. And he sent me a used flatbed and the rest was history. So I started scanning documents. So back to your question, not to go off on a tangent. That's how I started. And that curiosity that I had growing up as a kid and loving comic books and science fiction and then you know talking on internet chat rooms and other people having experiences going from that into government documents, my curiosity went through the roof. And I was filing requests 50 at a time, 100 at a time, literally sending them out. And most of the agencies at the time, you had to mail it in. So my dad was buying me postage, and then some would take them through email. But I would just file these things and get the documents back and put them online. Um, And each document I got, especially on UFOs, because I dealt with every government secret, increased my curiosity because that 1976 Iran incident was not a standalone incident. There was so much there to discover. And that's why my curiosity now, 26 years later, hasn't gone uh, down at all, but rather. And it's important that you mentioned some of those names like Alta Vista and AOL for for the older listeners who are not even old. I'm 36 and I remember the AOL discs. 
there was no Google, like you say. There was no YouTube. You couldn't just go online and look for UFO videos. It wasn't that simple. And even back in the very early days of videos online, they were very poor quality. They could take days to download, and it would be yeah. in a corrupt file and all that kind of stuff. I remember Start doing Start over. Like, yeah, that was at the Jackass movie back in the day was the yep. one I tried to get. So th- there was none of that available. So for you, was the goal to get documents to show you there was some sort of smoking gun proof of of alien life ufos really do exist was that what it was or was it just to compile data and collect data it's a great question i'm not entirely sure where i really wanted to be i mean if you ask me back then as a 15 and 16 year old kid hey do you think in 25 26 years from now you're still going to be running the black vault you're going to have 3.2 million pages online i'd say you're nuts but that's where I'm at. What was I looking for? I don't know if I was necessarily looking for the smoking gun because I didn't think that the government would send me the smoking gun. What I learned early on was that you were going to get pieces to a puzzle. And it was the pieces to the puzzle that you had to figure out how to kind of put them together. And would that create the smoking gun? And this day and age, I think you see it more than all else. In 2022, ufology, you see it I think more now than you ever have. And people want the smoking gun in one video, one photograph, one document that's irrefutable. And that's it. That's going to convince me and nothing else. And I think with this topic, what I've learned over the years is you can't do that. You can't expect it. Nothing is that easy. Go away from UFOs and you look at some of the most important realms of scientific research. You didn't have just one thing that proved the biggest scientific discoveries ever. Rather, you had years of research, years of of theories, years of failing, thinking that you understood something. But at the end of the day, you realize, no, no, well, that was a failure. You need that to understand. So in that respect, what I wanted to do was archive the puzzle pieces. Because again, if I was looking for it, so were others. And that was the tool we needed. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with books or documentaries. I've made documentaries for, for years on History Channel and Discovery Channel, and I've written books. But for me, stepping away from that, I want the raw material, right? That raw data, the documents. That's why on the Black Vault, yes, you'll find my opinions sometimes. You'll find editorialized articles sometimes. But no matter uh, if you see that or not, always the documents are there in full, in full. I don't edit. I don't um, take out what I don't think you should read or see or what I think you might not be interested in. No, I dump everything. And that way you have every single puzzle piece. And I think that more than all else is what I've wanted to do since day one, because wasn't sold on the smoking gun being there and that I was set on finding it, but rather I wanted every single puzzle piece there was to create the smoking gun, as many as I can get, and make sure that you and I had access to it. 26 years is an incredible amount of time to put into to any passion or labor yeah. of love, which was what this started as, for it to continue to the, the level it has now. What is it about FOIA that appeals to you most? Some people may not like this 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 answer, but bear with me. For me, documents don't lie, meaning they are physical proof that no matter what I think or what I say, I can back it up with a document. Now, of course, documents can have lies on them. The government can lie to me and and so on. But for me, the appeal is that I can go after government documents with a, a US federal law and regulation that allows me to access it and challenge what a Pentagon spokesperson has said to me, or what a press conference by the undersecretary of defense and what he says, you can, you can challenge that. And some people think, well, the FOIA is useless because they won't give you anything that they don't want you to have. And to be honest with you, I have 3.2 million pages overall, but thousands of examples that they are pieces to the puzzle that they did not want me to have. And that I fought through the appeal process and created legal documents and legal arguments to get these documents extracted. So even though the FOIA has its challenges, 
those types of pieces of evidence can come out there. And that for me is the appeal, because if you really look at it, it's not the government's way of pretending to be transparent, but rather it is the government's obligation to answer my request, give me the information. And that's when I say the, the documents don't lie, because that is something that you can take as an official piece of evidence and nobody can say otherwise. Again, what's on the document that's up for debate, but this is information that didn't come to me from a leak or didn't come to me from a source that I can't name to you or wasn't in a box that was handed to me in a dark, deep underground garage somewhere. Uh, I just can't tell you who gave it to me. None of those types of stories. This is something with CIA letterhead, CIA signatures, NSA, FBI, DIA, you name it, I've gone after it and it's official. So for me, it adds a different level of legitimacy. Then the debate comes in of what are we looking at here on the document or on a particular video. And, and that takes the debate to a whole new level. Uh, one thing I always want to point out, and it's the biggest misunderstanding about me by my biggest haters out there, never in 26 years, not once have I said that FOIA was the end all be all ever. Uh, it's not what I use solely. Uh, it's just what I use primarily. And I think that that's a big misunderstanding to me because I get that thrown at me a lot. Well, John didn't get it through FOIA, so he doesn't believe it. That's not true at all uh, because I have proven actually through FOIA, ironically, some of the biggest lies that the government has given out about the UFO topic. So uh, forgive me for wanting to throw that in there, but I think that no, that is okay. a miscon misconception about what I do that I just think FOIA is the end all be all. Never once have I said that. And, and I put the challenge out there too, to some people that just continually lob that, that uh, mud at me. And I go, okay, give me a quote. Where have I said anything like that? Uh, and of course I never get responses after that, but it, it's um, a misunderstanding. But that aside, the appeal for me is that official seal that you can put on that evidence. And then it becomes a little bit irrefutable to a level that you can then take the next step and start debating, okay, what is this video? What is this photo or what's on this document? How does the human element of the FOIA process affect the overall end result of what you get in terms of documents? And by that, what I mean is we can't be sure that regardless of the process, there has to be an element, element of trust that you have in the individuals that they're sending you what you're asking for. And there, there could be, I'm going to say this very crassly, but a box labeled do not send out regardless of FOIA requests. And that's <laughs> got the really good stuff in it. Let, just sit, putting it like that. And you're getting all these great documents and they're getting letterheads and it's got little bits of information here and there. But, is it a trust element that you're getting exactly what you should be getting? Again, for an example, you're, you're aware of Jazz Shaw, the journalist. I think you've spoken to Jazz. During our interview a couple of months ago, he mentioned how he foiled a document that he had in his possession and was told that no such document existed. And again, that's an example of, you know, maybe it was the wording, and I'm sure you've come across that many times, appeal, 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 and eventually you get what you want. H how does that for you... Where does that trust come into it that the human element can can derail what you're trying to achieve? That's a great question because the human element is often forgotten about when dealing with the FOIA, that you're dealing with people on the other side. And it makes it challenging because you want to believe that they're doing the best job that they can be doing. You want to believe that they want to help you. And in many cases, they do. Uh, but in the same respect, there's a lot of people that just don't care about helping you. They don't care about their job or they don't want these UFO documents out or whatever I'm requesting. They don't want them out. And you have to have a level of trust that they're adhering to the law. But the great thing about it away from the human element is that you can challenge it. So if you feel that there's a FOIA officer that is saying, hey, John, sorry, pal, we got nothing on this. Uh, go away. And I believe based on evidence that he's wrong, that human element becomes irrelevant because then what happens is, is that through the law, I can then file an appeal. That appeal does not go to that same guy that just said, Hey, John, I got nothing that goes to what's called an appellate authority, uh, appellate authority. And what they do is they process your appeal. Now, why is this important? 
it's generally a different office, a different person, and essentially a different process altogether. So that human element that required trust and required belief in that person that they are trying to do the best that they can, that then, if you want to challenge it, you can. And that there is a process for another person to come in that in in a lot of cases has a higher security clearance and that they are able to take your appeal and take the case that you put up to argue it and make a a decision. And I can tell you that in numerous cases that that person at the appeal level disagreed with the FOIA officer and agreed with me. And I won the appeal, what I call a win. It's technically a, a grant, a granted appeal. Uh, I call them wins because when you get that person to say, John, you put up a good case, I'm going to send that back to that person who said, John, I got nothing. And they have to reopen the case, do it again. And if they come back and give you the same answer, uh, then you, which is pretty rare. Um, but if they give you the exact same answer, you can uh, essentially challenge it again or take them to court. So there are checks and balances on a system that does rely on the human element a little bit and trust and belief and hope, you know, uh, crossing our fingers for good luck. Uh, it, it allows you to challenge that and takes it to a different level, uh, which is a good thing. So I, I hope I understood and answered your question correctly, but Absolutely. It, it's, it's often a very forgotten about element to FOIA that there's a human being on the other side which is why I always try and be as nice as I can. But man, some of them make it challenging. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts. I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. I think in general, I've tried on the podcast, no matter what side of an argument I'm falling down on, whether it's talking about FOIA or the US government or NASA or an organization, you're still talking about people and individuals make up these organizations. And you talk about the government covered up Roswell, uh, that was people covered up Roswell and they're all dead. And people carried on from them and people carried on from them and so on and so forth. So it's the human element, I think, is a massive factor. Many, many people do forget in this. Do you think in terms of documents you can FOIA that we've talked about that potential smoking gun that clearly isn't out there for anyone yet? Are the very best UFO documents even there to be FOIA'd? Or do you think those are just those are gone, locked away, kept away, and they're just not part of that process no matter what you request? I think there's a level of secrecy that FOIA is not going to touch, not necessarily because the law has a shortcoming, but rather these heavily guarded secrets are known by only a few. So how can the FOIA start blanketing into these dark, dark, deep secret caverns of, of the CIA or the NSA to start grabbing that material? And it's, 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 um, it's a tough question to answer because it's very hard to prove. Uh, the, the, the only thing that you can say uh, and that I can prove is that when you look back in time and you look at how many times, let's say the NSA, I'm getting away from UFOs here for a moment, but the NSA denied certain things through FOIA and through press statements and so on, let's say like the spying programs and how many times they've lied about that or FOIA requests that should have brought something up about it, but did not. And they say, hey, we've got nothing on this. 
then someone like Edward Snowden comes around and says, well, boom, here you go. And that completely contradicts from the top down press statements, FOIA responses, and so on. That's your proof that there is a untouchable arena here. But it doesn't mean you can't get close to it. It doesn't mean that you can't keep going to that appellate authority or to a judge. And it requires then deeper searches by people with higher classifications. And yeah, if you get lucky, you break a big story. But for me, I think the proof enough is there that there are realms that are going to be untouchable, but primarily because there are a select few uh, people that know those deepest, darkest secrets in some of the most highly classified arenas that exist. Someone like yourself, like you say, there must be many people FOIA requesting all sorts of things, but you've done it for a long time. You're very good at that. You must get very close to to that top level, Not maybe not the ones you can't get, but you know of, of what's available. Have you ever been dissuaded or had an incline you should stop doing what you're doing? Uh, we hear about people being approached or, you know, knocks on the door, men in black type figures, if you want to say that. But have you ever felt that you should stop because of some kind of outside influence? I've never had any official request to stop, threats to stop, knocks on my door, nothing like that. Um, I've talked briefly in the past about death threats that have come in from the general public. Um, last count, I think was 19 or 20, something like that. And uh, and those are the ones that were legitimate, uh, meaning like you could tell was on a different level of some idiot that was just, you know, sending a letter, but nothing was ever official. Do, do those things make me kind of take pause? As you mentioned, I'm a dad, I've got two kids. Is there some crazy person that's going to show up on my lawn one day? Yeah, that always makes me concerned. Um, but that's the internet for you and dealing with sometimes fringe topics and so on. When it comes to official stuff, I've never run into that. Um, I, 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 I do believe in the need for government secrecy as much as I'm interested in transparency. I believe that there is a level of secrecy that has to be kept. I come from a family of those that worked in the military and government uh, that, that were on different levels of secrecy. Uh, my father worked on... Um, he says that he didn't have a security clearance, but I'm not sure if I'll find out one day he did. Uh, but my dad worked on the space shuttle, uh, worked on the Mars lander, uh, but also worked on space defense uh, initiative programs, the SDI program, uh, which that's where I believe that he would likely have to have a, a security clearance of some kind. All of that is public. That's not secret or anything like that. Uh, but that's the program that they would intercept missiles and stuff like that. My dad mm -hmm. worked on uh, some of that. And then my grandfather worked on uh, highly classified, top secret level uh, aircraft, missile designs, stuff like that. Sadly, I never got to meet him. Um, but all of that being said, what I wanted to do was set kind of the foundation of why I say there is a level and I support a level of certain amounts of, of secrecy. I think it has to be kept. Um, but for me, I will push and push and push until I can get as much transparency as I can. And they will define when I stop. I don't believe they will ever have, to, they meaning government, military, those that work in the shadows, they don't have to knock on my door and tell me to stop. Because I think that when you get to that level of secrecy that has to be kept, and I'll push it as, as far as I can until I get there, uh, that door will be shut well in advance of me getting it. And uh, they don't need to tell me they'll do it themselves. Yeah, it's disappointing to hear any any guest receives death threats. And there's there's plenty of people I've disagreed with in the past. John, I've disagreed with many of your tweets or opinions or takes on mm -hmm. things. And everyone's entitled to that. Mick West being the biggest naysayer or skeptic online. Again, I, I've mute Mick West, but that's not me going, haha, I'm hitting the mute button. It's just, I don't agree with a lot of opinions. There's an element of trolling to it as well. I think Mick enjoys a little bit of what he does and getting a rise mm -hmm. out of people. It's a British thing. So for me, just mute, <laughs> move on. And that's it. Fill your timeline with, you know, the news and people you want to see. And I'm all for a bit of healthy debate because, you know, it's nice to see the other side of the fence. So it's disappointing, like you say, when people are going as far as, as death threats and all that kind of stuff. And I would yeah. always just give the advice to folks, just have a, have an argument, debate, and just agree to and disagree move and move on. I, I think that that's, your the, friend. that's the fun part of this topic. And it's also the evil side all at once because we can't, we shouldn't all agree. You know, and and I don't expect people to agree with me, 
but that's the fun of it. We don't have the answers yet. You know, um, I'm always apprehensive if people feel they figured it all out. I think that once we do figure out what these UFO phenomena are, and I use plural, uh, I think that it's probably off the mark of what everybody has been talking about, you know, for years. I think that there's a lot of different facets and aspects. So the fun of it is that debate, but it's so easy to get caught up in the evil side of it as well, where you just get so passionate uh, about what we are believing in and saying, and then the aggression starts. I mean, you just go head to head with people and it escalates. So it's a fascinating aspect to the conversation because there are some that sure will get heated and passionate, myself included, but there is that line, you know, that you kind of hit and go, all right, I got to go take a break. You know, I'm going to go, go kick the soccer ball around with my kid, uh, get outside a bit and walk away. Others can't. And, and for me, it's unfortunate, but it's also fascinating that this topic can just grab you and get you to that point where you do get aggressive, you know, and that you do say things that you wouldn't normally say or do. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the topic from that standpoint as well, because it is so much fun, but it can be met with such viciousness. Uh, and it, it's all part of the same arena. And, and that's what uh, fascinates me about it overall is, is the people within it and how everybody reacts to news and stories and stuff like that. One of the more lighthearted enemies I, th I suppose you have would be redactions. Uh, and I, I wanted to know, do you have any examples of some of the most frustrating redactions you've come across within documents? Keeping with the UFO arena, I think one of the mo more fascinating and even more recent would be when I was able to get the office of the director of national intelligence to release a redacted version of the classified UAP report from last year. And I worked a long time on that. I had filed the day after the public version came out. I knew that there was a classified version filed the case that Saturday morning and pushed hard to get it released. A lot of people said they would never release any of it. I was thankful to get the full 17 page document released. A frustrating redaction, however, were the shapes of UAP, the common shapes. And I, I think that me myself, sure, I was really frustrated at that, but I'm a little used to redactions. The general public, I think, was outraged by those redactions and how ludicrous it is that just the mere shape of something is considered classified. Now, for those who don't follow what I do, um, I have filed a, an appeal case on that specifically targeting quite a few redactions, uh, but the the shapes of the UFOs and, and or UAP and uh, um, the, the boxes that they had. So in my opinion, the way I look at it, I think what we're going to find if they do release it are multiple photographs and um, drawings. I think I think there's going to be both. And for those who really follow closely, I have an open bet with Stephen Greenstreet, uh, and I won't let him forget about it for a hundred dollars, hundred US, on it will be a combo of of photographs and diagrams. But that's a way for me to kind of like lessen the frustration and made it fun and a challenge to get it, you know, by making a, a bet with Stephen Greenstreet. Uh, but regardless, that's what I think we're we're going to find. But it's frustrating. Why won't, why, what's, what is it about a shape? Was it saucer? Is it cube? Is it sphere in a cube or cube in a sphere? Whatever the shape is, why can't you tell me at least that? And that I think was, was pretty frustrating, uh, but hopefully a fight that I will win in the end, trying to get an update on that case, but I haven't uh, received one yet. So that's one example of, of a redaction. Um, a lot of names, and this is why th these particular redactions are very frustrating. When you're reading a document, exemption B6 uh, in the FOIA is privacy information. So if John Greenwald works for the NSA, oh, this conspiracies are going to start after that. But if, if I'm just using my name, uh, John Greenwald works for the NSA and I'm in an NSA document, they will redact my name if somebody requests it. So that's exemption B6. So when that goes out, when you read names and, and you understand when you're reading so-and-so, it's, but it's redacted, says 
whatever, you can't follow up on that. And those are redactions that you really can't fight. Uh, it's very, very rare when you can fight a B6 redaction and get it released. Uh, generally, the names will stay redacted for decades on top of decades because they don't want any invasion of personal privacy. Um, I used an NSA example with my name. They would also use exemption B3, uh, which is an internal statute that protects NSA employees. So why I'm bringing that up is that doubles the challenge to get those names out. Names are important to do your own independent investigation. Talk to the person who wrote the document. See what their experience was. You know, what, Fill in the blank. But talking to people is the next logical step to any investigation on any topic. But those redactions through FOIA, you can't fight them. So for me as the researcher, I get probably the most frustrated with uh, with name redactions, just because you can't fight it. Uh, second up would be national security. And national security included the shapes of UAP, but also that's exemption B1, national security. Uh, those are also very tough to fight, but at least you can somewhat put up an argument to try and fight it. Um, so I would say overall, those are going to be some of the most frustrating redactions that you run into because they are either incredibly difficult or impossible to fight. Do you care to speculate or maybe you know or have a good idea as to why the shapes were redacted? I wish I did know. Uh, I'm. It's It would be pure speculation. Obviously, the, the shapes... The shapes could potentially identify foreign but but still unidentified technology platforms, if that makes sense. So when you start locking in that they're seeing certain identifiable shapes, then five years from now, we realize that China had a classified yeah. drone of that shape. We now realize that for however many years, that particular shape, i.e. a Chinese drone, was successfully infiltrating US military airspace, and the military couldn't figure it out. So this is that level of secrecy that I teeter on the edge of, well, I want to know, but I kind of understand that we shouldn't know. And that is you, you release your vulnerabilities, that you are showing the planet, the, these are our weaknesses. And, and yes, a shape could potentially identify that. So there are ways to look at this that are frustrating, but, but, but you can understand why they would keep certain things secret. And that would be one way. The other way is if there's a shape of something that fits absolutely nothing, then what do you do? And I think the general public will really start to speculate, okay, is this proof that there is extraterrestrial technology in our airspace, which is a big possibility? We don't know. So that in itself is a national security risk to the United States. Because when you start admitting that now not only do you have zero idea what the technology is, but it has been successfully infiltrating our airspace without us able to defend ourselves for decades. That in itself is a national security concern because not only does it release our vulnerabilities, but on top of that, you're starting to essentially terrify the American people that you are no longer in control of your own airspace. And I think that there's a lot of weight to that theory that alien or not, it doesn't matter, but the true national security risk is admitting you're weak and that you can't defend yourself. All that I think can be deduced from shapes and then it just kind of spirals from there. So I still do hope I win that appeal, uh, but there's some speculation on why they may, they may not allow me to win that one. No, that's interesting. Uh, on the Breaking News podcast I done at the time of the, the release and obviously at the release of your classified um, FOIA, that was what I had heard as well and spoke about on the podcast that if there were foreign adversarial drone technology, it may be one they don't want them to know that they've got pictures of them. But also, like you say, there's that element of weakness in 
you know, we don't know what these are, how they're operating and the information they're gathering. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. And separately, we, we do hope secretly there's that. And I'm sure the 15-year-old John Greenwald has that inkling of imagine seeing that come through and there's a flying saucer picture or something like that. Knowing our luck, it's going to come back that the really good ones would be the drawings, which I imagine, yeah, there's going to be some artist impressions, which, again, would be frustrating. But you never know. Like the Calvine photo, it may, it may come out eventually. Um I want to ask you, John, people often talk about the core story and many people have different versions of this. What for you would be the core story when it comes to how the US government has handled the UFO subject? The core story is in like just overall how they've handled yeah, it in so, the last... So, or, or why they've handled it from 1947. Let's go back to the Roswell time to now. What do you think they're trying to keep from the public? Is, is there that element of at first it was something unknown or is it something else that's just spiraled out of control i think it's kind of all of the above and then some i think for me i have to separate pre-2017 and 2017 and beyond to properly answer that before 2017 i think for decades i can comfortably without any shadow of a doubt and so can others prove the UFO cover-up using their own evidence, using documentation, disproving press statements, going against their own press uh, conferences, all by using their own documentation. So for me, the lie didn't work. And that, for me, is the core of their story from 47 on. So even if you ignore Roswell, I believe that Project Blue Book, enough evidence exists to show that that was not an investigation. It may have been in the early days, but rather its intent was to be an explanation. I believe that Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a prime piece of proof of that, that he goes in there and his job is to debunk. I did a show for History Channel. We really dug in deep on J. Allen Hynek's life and what his intent was. And it was fascinating to see him as a scientist shift from that, hey, this, there's nothing to this. UFOs are explainable, no evidence, and he'd go in and he'd, you know, essentially debunk. As the years progressed, more cases came across his desk. I believe it was uh, uh, Delphos or Socorro that that ultimately changed his mind. Uh, I think it's speculated it was Socorro, but regardless, he had this shift, and that shift was there's something to this. We have to investigate, and you see that with his actions post Blue Book and. He comes out as a scientist and he and he wants to pursue the, the topic more. One of the coolest discoveries wasn't even through FOIA, but that came across my desk was a, a researcher by the name of Rob Mercer. And Rob Mercer was uh, essentially surfing eBay and Craigslist for UFO memorabilia, you know, you, whatever UFO stuff he could find. And to quickly summarize the story, Rob had come across this advertisement for old pro original project blue book documents that were found in a garage in Ohio. And so Rob like immediately contacts the person. And again, summarizing the story, apparently these people had just purchased a home, bunch of ratty old boxes in the garage. All these documents were inside. Rob Mercer purchases them, tracks down the original homeowner who left them there behind turns out was one of the original Project Blue Book investigators. Uh, at the time, I believe he was a lieutenant. Uh, his name was Carmen Morano. So Rob tracks him down. Morano still had material left. So he left some behind, but he also took some with him to his new home. Rob goes out, gets all that stuff too. And Rob brings it back, gets in contact with me. I fall in love with the story because it's awesome. It's irrefutable. Carmen Morano's story checks out. You can see his name in some of the documents, not the ones found in the garage, but official documentation. So really kind of cool stuff. So I digitized the whole thing, or excuse me, um, archived the whole thing. Rob had digitized uh, the majority of it. And so we put it online. Okay. Why am I telling you that story other than it's pretty darn cool? If you look at those documents, a lot of the documents never made it to the National Archives and exist in the National Archives collection of Project Blue Book. When you look inside, there was original correspondence from Dr. J. Allen Hynek to, at the time, 
Hector Quintanilla, who was the head of Project Blue Book, but on the military side. And Heineck was trying throughout multiple letters, and you can see his signature and everything, uh, to get Quintanilla to agree to reopen the cases that they debunked. That Heineck had this shift that realized, hey, we're this is wrong, that we had are debunking whatever, but it's wrong. All of these cases, uh, and he specifically named some of them, should be reopened and so on. So when you when you look at that era, you realize that entire couple decades from 47 to 69 through Grudge Sign and Project Blue Book was a farce. After Project Blue Book ended, a lot of this evidence comes out. We had speculation that Blue Book was a joke. Now I think we have proof that it was a joke. Now fast forward. Through the decades, they lied through their teeth. But through FOIA, you can see that every government agency, including the intelligence community, had classified up to top secret documents on UFOs, the majority of which shouldn't exist. If you really dig in, they display technology that we don't have at the time, and in some cases don't even have today. And you go, wow, they're saying one thing, evidence shows another. That's pre-2017. 2017 comes around, and in my opinion, changes everything. Because now, aside from the debate of ATIP, UFOs, no UFOs, doesn't really matter. To the government, they had to handle this UAP issue, which everybody was pushing. So for me, to answer the second part of this, of this uh, answer, post-2017, they said, okay, now we got to start talking about UAP and not deny it. Now we got to admit that we're looking into it because it is a threat. It's a hot topic. Everybody's, everybody's printing stuff about it and asking questions. So let's meet it head on. And it became, in my opinion, a counterintelligence asset in itself to the American military and the American government. Why I say that is because now they can do a couple things all rolled into what we're seeing unfold. I'll start off with, again, another misconception about me. I do believe there is a percentage of these phenomena that are real, unidentified, and an extraterrestrial connection has not been ruled out. I can't tell you 100% because I don't know, but I'm just saying I haven't seen enough to, to rule that out. So I believe that there is a percentage here that you, me, your audience wants to see. But in what we're seeing now, that percentage, and albeit probably a small one, in the grander scheme of things, is being covered up. Because in the same cover-up, you can now cover up our secret technology, our classified platforms that we know we're testing. History shows us that. We've been doing it for decades on top of decades. And a lot of those have been the result of UFO sightings. Not all, but definitely some. But then you also, in that same cover-up, cover up what we know about our adversaries and play dumb and say, hey, we have no idea what was spooking our ship out there while we were, um, and I'm using this as a broad example, but in 2004 in the Nimitz, what if that was a foreign technology, right? Hypothetically speaking. Well, now the Navy just goes, huh, we have no idea what it was. And the foreign power that actually was responsible for that is sitting back going, wow, do they really not know it was us? Or do they know? And this is all a lie, smokescreen. That's the textbook definition of counterintelligence. Ensure that your enemy has absolutely no idea what you're talking about. So I think people cringe when they start hearing like, oh my gosh, the Nimitz, no way it could be American technology. It's still a possibility. It, I mean, it just is. People hate me for saying it, but it is a possibility. And I think that when you step away from that personal connection that we all have to this, and it's easy to not be able to do that. I find myself sometimes not being able to do that myself. But step away and look at it in a, in a broader scope. The counterintelligence value to this conversation in 2022 is a goldmine because they are able to openly admit they look at UAP, give the aura of transparency, but in the process, cover everything up. In my opinion, it's kind of brilliant. It's a very fair argument, and obviously you make those points well. I've I've said openly on the podcast before, and I suppose it's easier not being an American citizen, that 
I don't believe that the US government or, or any government or superpower wouldn't test things out on their own Navy or personnel. So while personally I've said before, and people can go back and check and many listeners no doubt do, I believe the Tic Tac event was non-human origin. However, I've always said that if it came out that tomorrow, and we're going to talk about Lou Elizondo in a minute, Lou Elizondo was out lying and the US government, it was US technology and they were testing out on their own Navy carrier group and it was a nuclear carrier group and it was really dangerous. I wouldn't be shocked at that because there's enough evidence to show governments have tested some horrible things out on their own personnel in the past. So the questions for me, though, on things like the Tic Tac is if it is adversarial or US technology, where did they get that level of technology where it's performing these incredible maneuvers? And that doesn't mean the conversation doesn't go back to did they recover crashed alien technology somewhere down the line? When did they break, you know, these incredible speeds? How can they perform these incredible maneuvers? Because like you say, we'll no doubt have some amazing tech, but to perform the way it does, it's just a whole lot of questions come out. I've mentioned Lou, and it's a good time to bring it up. I think you had Lou's first official interview if, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should because it doesn't really scare me.